Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast. And as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello and welcome to a double episode of A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. As you know, I get case suggestions and I just add them to my list. Um, now they can take me a while to get to. Um, sometimes they can take me a long while to get to, but I do get to them. I look at them like assignments, so I just I add them to the list. And when they come up, I just research them and I, and I really try to commit to making an episode on the case for you. So today's case was a case suggestion from Elizabeth, who found me thanks to her sister. So thank you to both Elizabeth and her sister. Now, she Elizabeth suggested today's case and she said that she hadn't seen much coverage on it. And I can tell you, Elizabeth, that the reason you haven't seen much coverage is because there just really isn't much. The family has stayed extremely private, which of course is their prerogative to do so. And it, the case was solved very quickly. So there's just not a lot of information on it. So I, I wasn't sure if I was going to have enough information for a full episode on it, but ye shall suggest and thou shall deliver. So um, what I decided to do instead is to tell this story and then another story that's somewhat similar that I, I found now, these particular types of murders are actually pretty rare, but it doesn't seem that way because it, it seems like there's uh, quite a few of them in the news. And of course, one is far too many in my book, and they are exactly the type of murder that really fascinates me. So I was really determined to talk about it in any way that I could. Um, so I'm going to bring you two for the price of one, that price being free. So that's like an extra little bonus. And then I also found this really good um, symposium that was from the National Institute of Justice about men who murder their families, which, sorry, is a bit of a spoiler alert there. Um, so I want to talk about some of what I learned uh, in that symposium because it was quite fascinating. 
This is the Challen and the Handel family murders. Heidi Challend, of which we have very little background information, was living in Victoria, B.C., and she had two children from a man. Now, I don't know his first name, but his last name was Shorter. So together they had two boys named David and Robert. And then that relationship broke down at some point. And then she went on, she had another boy named Calvin and a daughter named Jewel with a fisherman that was named Dave Gillies. Now, I don't think that she married either one of those men because all the reports that I came across named the children all with the last name Challand, but they could just have that information mistaken. So I I don't know whether she had married those men or not. Um, It doesn't matter. But shortly after Jewel was born, and this was before her second birthday, that relationship broke down as well. And in March of 1997, Heidi and the kids moved to Black Creek, B.C., which is a farming community of about 3,500 people near Courtney. It's on the eastern side of Vancouver Island. And it was originally a logging camp town, um, but then was provided as an area for Mennonite settlers from Germany and Austria in the 1930s. And in the 1950s, many of the Austrian and German immigrants were sponsored over by the Black Creek Mennonite. Much of the town was German-speaking until the 1960s or so. It's an extremely church-oriented community. Heidi and her kids moved into a house on North Highway Island, and it was a fairly large plot of land. It was about two hectares, uh, surrounded by a wooded area of trees, and then there was a creek that went through the property. And on that land was this two-story white clapboard, really quaint little house. Now, I'm not sure of the timeline as far as things went, because again, information is very scant. But from what I could discover, it sounds like Heidi either moved to Black Creek and got a job delivering newspapers for the Victoria Times colonists. And then that's where she met a man named David John Gordon. Uh, Or she maybe met him in Victoria maybe online, although online dating wasn't really a thing back in 1997. So I know that David had been working delivering newspapers for a man named Bob Palmatier for about 10 years prior to March 1997. So I have to assume that he was a local in the area, in that Black Creek area. And if Heidi and her kids didn't move there until then, then either they met almost as soon as she moved there, Um, or had met him previous to her moving there, and he was the reason her and the kids moved there. Because by July of 1997, one of David's neighbors, Werner Duft, had sort of talked to the media at the time that this story happened and said that he had been living across the highway from their house for the past 40 years and had met David Uh, a few times and that David had told him that their family had been renting there and liked living there. So it was more than likely one of those relationships that just moved extremely quickly with David encouraging her and the kids to move in with him. Uh, Neighbors described Heidi uh, and the kids as very quiet and that they kept to themselves. You just never really heard anything from them. And those same neighbors and, and some of friends described David as friendly, helpful, Uh, The kids really seemed to enjoy the space that they had there and were often seen in the yard playing with the two dogs that they had or fishing in that creek that just ran along the property. And as things go, Heidi likely didn't know much about David's past relationships. 
Again, my conjecture here is that David would have laid his claim to Heidi pretty quickly, presenting a very perfect picture of this knight in shining armor to her. David, as it turns out, had a bit of a history with past relationships that didn't end particularly well. At the time that he was with Heidi, he was actually still legally married. Uh, That's one thing. Uh, So he had two kids of his own living back in Victoria. And this darker history of his included in 1977, there was an attack on his 16-year-old girlfriend. That relationship ended when he stabbed her 19 times. Uh, She was left hospitalized for a full month after that incident, but fortunately survived. And then in 1983, he was convicted of aggravated assault for wielding a knife at his then-wife, who I believe is a different wife than the one that he had the two kids with. On the morning of July 15th, 1997, David called Bob at the paper, left a voicemail that he was quitting, no real explanation. During that week, David's parents had tried to call the house several times and hadn't gotten any answer. So John Gordon, who was David's dad, reached out to the RCMP to just go and check on the house. And they did send an officer over who knocked on the door. He didn't get any answer, but he didn't really see anything like wrong or anything concerning. So he called John back and told him that, you know, nothing seems to be wrong, but they're not home. David's 1983 Dodge van was not in the driveway. So he figured eh, maybe they went for a camping trip or, or something. I mean, it's summer. So that was a possibility. So this was on the Tuesday, but by Thursday, they still hadn't been able to get any answer. So John decided to go check for himself. So he actually drove from their home in Nanaimo and broke through a window to get in. And when he did, of course, he discovered a complete horror scene. At around 1.30 in the afternoon, he, John Gordon discovered the bodies of Heidi Challenge, who was 28, David Jr., who was 9, Robert, who was known as Bobby, he was 12, Calvin, 6, and Little Jewel was only 2. And they all appeared to be bludgeoned. A very visibly shaken Courtney RCMP Sergeant Dean Hodgson confirmed that, quote, no death is pleasant. There are children involved. It's and it's a grisly scene. He also indicated that it was the worst crime scene that he had ever seen. Another RCMP detective, Sergeant Russ Grab, said that there were going to be autopsies conducted in Vancouver on that Saturday but he did tell the media at the time that it appeared that they had all been killed by an axe. He wouldn't go any further on that, elaborating besides saying that it was a full-size axe. So obviously David Gordon was labeled a person of interest, and this manhunt was started immediately. Uh, Russ said that uh, he's been missing for a couple of days at least at that point. Helicopters, tracking dogs were brought in to help with the search, but they believed he was likely still in the area because his van had been found abandoned in that Courtney area. So on the Friday afternoon, they decided to start checking every hotel room and motel in the Comox area, and they discovered that he had last been seen on the Wednesday. He was checking out of the Courtney Coast Westerly Hotel, and then they managed to find him at a room in the Sleepy Hollow Inn. He didn't fight being arrested and was immediately taken in for questioning. Now, for those of you that are concerned, the challenge two dogs were not injured. Um, one of them was taken in by a neighbor, and the other one was sent to the SBCA to be adopted. 
David, who was 37 when he was arrested, he told the police that he had snapped because he had suspicions that Heidi, who he had planned to marry, had been seeing another man. Those suspicions were found, of course, not to be true. He said, quote, I think I made a plan to go away, which then changed to suicide and then changed to murder. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So he was sent for a mandatory psych assessment, um, and then he was tried for first-degree murder. He pleaded guilty and is currently serving five concurrent life sentences. At his trial, Heidi's dad wrote in his victim impact statement, No more hugs, just memories. For his actions, David told the court, I am sorry for what I've done and I pray God will forgive me and have mercy on my soul. Are you an introvert like me? Hate going outside your house and having to put on pants? Or dealing with the stress of the conveyor belt at the big scary supermarket? I myself had a pickle jar incident in 2017, of which I am still scarred. With Instacart, you can shop online in your pajamas or even naked if you want to. Browsing from over 500 million products in 5,500 cities in the U.S. and Canada. Besides groceries, you can get beauty and office products delivered right to your door in as fast as one hour. Nobody needs to blame you anymore for not having 115 popsicle sticks and glitter glue on hand for craft day tomorrow in your son's grade 2 class. Your shopper will handpick the best stuff and not the squishy tomatoes, and even keep your eggs and bread safe. You can even order from Costco or Sam's Club without your own pesky membership. Just click in the link in the show notes and sign up and get free delivery on your first order of over $35. You're welcome. And so that was all that I could find on the murder of Heidi, Bobby, David, Calvin, and Jewel Challand. But before I move on to the next case, I just want to tell you a little something about what I found out about one of Heidi's aunts named Ellen, I think it's Sita, um, that I found in my journey. She was actually part of a National Film Board of Canada documentary called Ellen's Story. Uh, Now, I wasn't able to find that anywhere, even though I was quite interested in watching it. Um, Now, she also did write a book with the same title that is available on Amazon, and it sounds like just really quite a remarkable story. She was born in England during World War II, suffered a lot of abuse at the hands of her mother, and was sexually assaulted at the very young age of four. 
she fled England for Canada as soon as she could when she was 18 with her sister Anne, who I believe is Heidi's mum. She suffered with undiagnosed dyslexia, which of course she didn't know that that's what she had. So she was functionally illiterate. Um, she had left school at 14 and was working in a denture factory. I mean, she really just lived in poverty and, and even considered um, sex work as a way out. So when she moved to Canada, she met and married a very well-educated man and tried to hide her illiteracy, uh, which caused her to suffer depression, turn to alcohol. She considered suicide a number of times. Now, she got sober after an incident um, when her teenage daughter kind of basically had to clean up after her. So at 45, she learned to read with the help of Project Literacy in Victoria and now sits on the expert board of the Canadian Public Health Association. And she had some very powerful words. She said that basically if she could do it at 45, then you can do it and that you need to do it for your children. Now, I don't know if the murder of her niece Heidi is much of a focus in her book. She did mention it as um, one of the traumas that she suffered in her life. It was in the Times Colonist article that was written by Catherine uh, Dadna is where I found out about her. I might order a copy of the book. It sounds really interesting. I always really like an underdog success story. Um, but I did want to mention her because I know that in Canada here, we do have some pretty sad statistics on literacy. Uh, and it's something that I don't think that we talk about enough. And it really does negatively impact people in their vulnerability to things like addiction, suicide, sex work, um, and just generally victimization. Um, so if you yourself do struggle with literacy, you know, please don't be ashamed of that. Reach out. I think that reading will definitely change your life. And I think that you can do it at any age and stage of your life. I know for myself, reading really opened a lot of doors for me. I think it helps you build empathy to be able to read, you know, thoughts and feelings of other people. So it's, it's just really important. So I did just want to mention that I thought it was just something I came across. I thought it was really interesting. I wanted to mention it. So now we're going to move on to March of 2002 in another small town named Quasino, which is on the northern side of Vancouver Island. This is the house of the Handel family. So we have Dad Jay, he's a fish farmer, Mom Sonia, and then they had six kids, three boys, three girls. Sebastian, who's 11, Roxanne, 9, Marshall, 7, Mariah, 6, Levi, 4, and then little Lydia, who's 2. Despite being married for over 12 years, it was kind of a troubled marriage and they had separated often only to get back together or try it again. And one of the last separations they had happened in December of 2001 when Sonia left the house. Now there had not been a history of violence between the couple, but it does appear that Jay was yeah, somewhat controlling, definitely often suspicious that Sonia was cheating. Uh, most of the separations that they had were the result of Jay's sort of harassment and accusations of her about infidelity, which of course had never been proven. But Jay said that he was actually shocked when Sonia asked for a legal separation in February of 2002. I don't think it really should have come as much of a shock to him because he had actually broken into the house of a man named Russell Lubrick, carrying with him a, this softball-sized rock, shining a flashlight in his eyes and threatening to kill him. And at that time, it took Russell two hours of talking him down to convince him that he was not, in fact, having an affair with his wife. So the night of Saturday, March 9th, was yet another heated accusation of infidelity. 
And so Sonia fled to her friend Debbie McNabb's house and stayed there that night. So on the Sunday, they went to a church service, which was held at the Quisino School, which doubled as a church on Sundays. So she went to church and Sonia and there were some other witnesses. They were just gathered outside doing the normal after Sunday hello to your neighbors that you do in a small town kind of thing. And Jay came up to Sonia and he gave her an ultimatum. He basically said, come home on his terms or don't come home at all. Now, Sonia stood her ground and Jay then took her hands in his and said, you are alone and then left the school slash church. Now, Sonia didn't understand what he was talking about. On Monday, March 11th, it was sort of just a rainy, yucky morning when Jay picked up Sonia from Debbie's house to take her home. I'm assuming it was to like get some of her things maybe. Now it was prearranged, so Sonia wasn't surprised to see him, so she didn't resist um, going with him. But on the way to the house, Jay actually slowed the car and stopped at the highest point of the road. Uh, It was along that Quisino Road. So the house was visible from there. Sonia saw to her horror that the house was actually engulfed in flames. A neighbor of the Handels, Alan Johnson, had run to the house in a panic and he saw coming down the road, Sonia just kind of suddenly emerged from this darkness or maybe the smoke. Uh, and she was yelling and screaming, my babies, my babies, he's killed my babies, he's over there and he's killed my kids. Jay had moved the van closer to the house and Alan could see him sitting in the driver's seat just staring at the house. So Sonia ran around to the front of the van and she was like beating and kicking on the driver's door screaming, you asshole, you son of a bitch, you killed my kids. And Jay was just sitting there. He, he was just looking through the window at her and then he made like the slack sorry my audio cuts out here a bit um he made a slash at his throat with a utility knife now he did manage to open a large rather gaping wound but rcmp witnesses later testified that 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 the gash that he had made actually seemed to be healing by the time that they arrived and later jay recovered very quickly in the hospital from that injury RCMP spokesman Sergeant Grant learned, he confirmed that, quote, the children were deceased before the fire that destroyed the Handel family home, and Jay Handel had set the fire. Now, two of the children's remains contained traces of codeine and, and acetaminophen, and then the two, two of the others had traces of metal fragments that they considered consistent with being shot. There was no evidence on what caused the deaths of the two other children. Um, Now they were going to attempt autopsies, but Grant had described the bodies of the children as very badly burnt, almost to the point of incineration. So of course the fire was suspicious immediately, um, obviously, um, but also it appeared that several buildings on the property, like I guess they had a shed and a garage, all went up, like all ignited simultaneously. So Jay was arrested at the hospital when he was being treated for his um, neck wound. Jay had also posted a note um, to the front post of the property. Like, I guess it's like where you would picture a mail, the mailboxes. He posted this note and it was addressed to Sonia. Now the full contents of the note have never been released, but the note did begin with the words, Dear Sonia, good luck. Like I said, you're alone. 
Russell Lubrick, um, the man that Jay had often accused Sonia of cheating with, he also got a note that it came in the mail two days after the fire. Again, the contents of that are not known at all. The only words that have ever been released are an afterthought, Russell. Uh, it just doesn't really tell us anything. And then a third letter was sent to the Handel's family doctor, Marlene Smith. And on the back of the envelope were just the words, Why should she leave the kids with me? The victim is left with no way out. So at his trial, he did admit to killing his six children, but pled not guilty on the grounds that he was suffering from a mental disorder at the time. His defense lawyer, John Green, told the jury he had killed the children because he felt that they they wouldn't be safe with Sonia and that he had intended to end his own life over what they called increasingly serious marital difficulties. John Green said, quote, he decided the only way to adequately protect his children was to kill them. He is a devout Christian who believes in a better afterworld. So he decided they would all be together in a better place and he would be there to protect them. That sounds crazy. So be it. Sonia's family kind of scoffed at that, saying that um, he had basically been to church maybe twice in the last 18 months before those burners. Jay testified on his own behalf that he remembers, all he remembers is that he sat down and then he woke up. He was strangling his two-year-old daughter, Lydia. And then he also says he remembers strangling the six-year-old Mariah and that he shot Roxanne, Levy, Sebastian, and Marshall. And then he set the house on fire and drove to um, get his wife and drive her home so that she could see the fire and then he was going to try and kill himself in front of her. Now, the jury completely rejected his defense that he had killed the children in order to keep the family together. They deliberated for two days before a guilty verdict. Crown Prosecutor Daryl Previtt said that justice was done. Crown is gratified that the jury saw the evidence the way the Crown did. Obviously, I think from our perspective, justice was done. Jay Handel is currently serving six concurrent life sentences. And he's going to remain in prison with no chance of parole until 2028. Sadly, Sonia passed away from ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease in August of 2009. And that was the murder of the Handel children, Lydia, Mariah, Roxanne, Levi, Sebastian, and Marshall. So coming to the symposium that I listened to, so the people who discussed the topic were Jackie Campbell. She's the Anna D. Wolf chair from John Hopkins and Richard Gellies, who is the School of Policy and Practice of the University of Pennsylvania. So I might pop in a clip or two here and there. Um, so if you're wondering who's talking, that is who it is. So why do these kinds of cases happen? And what like what would make a man kill his whole family? Do they, do they really just snap? So it appears that there's quite a difference between men. And now I, I know it seems like I'm picking on men, but intimate partner homicides are statistically committed by men. Now, thankfully, there are a lot more great and upstanding, wonderful men in the world. And of course, those are the ones that we should be picking as our spouses, our friends, our partners. But anyways, there is a difference between men who kill their spouse or their partner and those that kill their children. So with men who kill their partner, there's almost always some kind of prior domestic violence in that relationship, whether it's just controlling behaviors, threats of violence is a big, um, big predictor, possessive jealousy being sort of one of the major predictors of domestic, well, of domestic violence in general. 
So only about 33% of the murder of a partner results in the perpetrator attempting or committing suicide. And punishment is statistically the number one reason given for the murder. Now, prior threats are a huge predictor in these cases. Um, they consider it kind of like practice. The more I say it, the easier it becomes to actually do. Absolutely. On the specificity of threats, I, I found that as you got kind of closer and closer to the actual homicide or attempted homicide, threats had become not only more frequent, but more specific and more graphic as well. Yeah. Once the idea is voiced and becomes a possibility, um, the, the risk has suddenly changed um, and, and, it, and, it, and it goes up. If, if it becomes more articulate and more focused, it's only relevant if they have the weapon in the house. So uh, I could run around saying, I'm going to kill that cat, I'm going to shoot that cat, and my wife and children look at me and say, well, dad doesn't own a gun and is never going to own a gun. The cat is relatively safe. Um, on the other hand, if I go out and buy a gun, after I say I'm going to shoot that cat, I think my family should be terribly worried about the future of that cat uh, because there's now a connection between my vocabulary of motive and the instruments by which I can engage in the behavior. Unemployment is a factor, um, but the unemployment in these cases is usually one where um, the man has either gotten fired or has quit his job in order to have more time um, because he's so busy stalking and punishing his victim that he just he can't keep, keep a job. Now, men who kill their families are quite a bit different. 77% of them are white, um, and that a prior depressed mood was only acknowledged in about 11% of the cases. And guns are used in between, it, it's between 88 and 92% of the killings. It, it sort of depends on which study in particular you look at. Um, now, what makes studying this thankfully very rare subset of domestic homicides quite difficult is that almost all of them commit suicide, either directly after the killings or um, by forcing suicide by cop. So very few of the men in these cases have ever been interviewed to ask that big why question. But, the, but what the research has shown is that although unemployment does tend to be a factor in these cases as well, there's actually a delay between the unemployment and the killing itself, um, sometimes just weeks and sometimes it can be up to a year. Uh, so what they have found about the type of men that we're talking about here is that they're either men that see their families as possessions or men that see their family as part of their identity. Um, they call it like an overmeshing of like they, they, they just can't seem to separate themselves from their, their family or their children as individuals. Now, prior violence is not usually a factor, um, so they become very hard to predict. Now, the man doesn't mean that the man has never been abusive, it means that he's very rarely or, um, you know, maybe it's it's what they consider just verbal, not that often, so the police don't get involved. And so it's something that doesn't come up as a prior history of violence. Um, because a man who sees his family as a possession isn't necessarily violent with them, but is probably controlling. He's, you know, the authoritarian dad who, who likes things to be sort of his way. Um, the predictive event in those cases is something that they call economic suicide. Of that subset of men who kill their entire families for milicide, there seems to be a bump, small, uh, but three or four more cases in the last six months 
of the atypical familicide, not the possessive controlling husband with the gun. Um, and this is where theory comes in. Sometimes theory sort of evacuates the field, the field of child abuse and domestic violence. But this is a moment where it ought to be put back in. The kind of familicide that are represented by men who kill their wives and their children and themselves, if you remember week three of introductory sociology or week six of criminology, is what Durkheim called anomic suicide. And anomic suicide is where there are radical and significant changes in the economic environment. Second aspect that I look at beyond anomic suicide, which is uh, not suicide because you've lost all your money, but suicide because the rules of the game have changed. Uh, because what you thought would be true about your life and your family and your 401k and the loyalty of your company has suddenly been disrupted. That's anomic suicide. It's not simply losing money. It's not simply losing your job. When that mixes with what Dave Olson in his circumplex model called over-emmeshment into families, you have individuals who either view their family members as possessions that they control or don't see any boundaries between their identity, their wife, and their children. And so these are suicides of the entire family, where the anomic, overly enmeshed individual can't bear to leave the pain behind, and so takes his wife and children with him. What, what commonality do you find in these guys? They're the atypical ones for whom there isn't much of a record of domestic violence. There isn't much of a record of child abuse. And they're the ones where the neighbors typically say, he would be the last person on earth I would see doing that. My bottom line is, you probably can't prevent these events, but they could well be a canary in the mine shaft that people at NIJ and people at ACYF might want to pay attention to. So let's define that a little less scientifically. It's basically when a man's world completely implodes on him. It is the country western song about the guy who lost his job, then his wife left, and then his dog died. A man who sees his family as possessions, no longer in his control, his whole world is spiraling out of control, or the guy that just cannot differentiate between himself and his own failings and his family as individuals. Now, what's so scary about these kinds of guys is that they, they're not the ones that like to seek help. They don't talk about stuff going on with them. They just internally implode, which makes them even harder to identify and try to prevent them from going completely off the rails. Um, this can also be the guy whose entire life has been a lie. We saw that with the murder of Lori Hacking. Um, so what might be seen as red flags, although again, it's, it's really hard because there just hasn't been enough of these cases, thankfully, to study fully, but that might be an indicator of the propensity to go off those rails is that it's a real victim thinking that, oh, you know, I'm the victim, poor me, all of this is being done to me, him against the dark, cruel world. These are the, the guys that after everything is said and done, no matter what they do, no matter what their actions, they still see themselves as the victims. And although they usually readily confess to their role in the crime, you know, might even tell the court and family that they're truly sorry for their actions. If they're pressed on it, they're likely going to give themselves away that 
they really had no other choice. Basically, he was going to be exposed by his family in some way or another. It's not a suicide scenario. And he, again, won't look like the typical suicide if he does seek help because he's despondent. And what David said about that combination, it's not one or the other. It's not either revenge or control or despondency. That's all mixed up in these guys. And you can see when you read the homicide records, it's really tragic, this downward spiral that they were not unknown to people. Their boss knew that they all of a sudden quit or he stopped working well and he had to fire them. Um, so they were, they were known that something was going on. Um, they were oftentimes known, as I said, to the mental health care system. And, and we could, we can't, we're not going to be able to prevent all of these, but we could do a better job of being alert for them, of knowing that this kind of, of um, scenario does exist and can happen and is horrifically tragic. When we did our first survey, and we put, we had correlation between poverty and child abuse and poverty and domestic violence, and we, we then passed it out and looked at, at economic and racial groups, and then we added stress. Um, and it was interesting. There were only two populations that stress did not increase the risk of domestic violence or child abuse, the poor and the very well-to-do. So you looked at that, and, 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 and then theoretically the answer was, if you're poor and you're already oppressed, this economy isn't going to change all that much for you. Um, and if you're extremely well-to-do and maintain your level of income, you can purchase your way out of stress. So where the new population of offenders are coming from are people who are in between where the rules of the game have changed, where company loyalty isn't company loyalty, where, where if I work until I'm 65, my, my retirement will carry me. And, and, and that, that is not an oppressed population. Now, you know, it's going to be predominantly white men. Um, my question is about cases where the perpetrator kills just the children and not the spouse or partner. Um, sort of the prevalence of those cases and if those perpetrators look different than the perpetrators that we've discussed already? Biological dads who kill their children are a real rarity. Um, child homicide is, 50% of it is kids under three years of age. Almost most of them killed by moms or paramours. Um, as the children get older, that's the only place where biological dads become offenders, and it's almost always uh, an overmeshed control custody dispute. Um, and it's a different variation of what Jackie talked about. If I can't have you, no one can. If I can't have them, you can't. Um, now, some of those homicides are deliberate, and some of them are accidental. The numbers aren't huge. Uh, but if you're, if you're looking at deaths of older children at the hands of parents, and if it's a biological parent, so it's pretty much going to be a dad, and it's pretty much going to be the consequence of a very ugly, controlling, nobody-can-win-custody fight. What I found in interviewing the killers and interviewing the victims of attempted homicide is that the frequency of threats was very significant. The more frequently someone had threatened to kill his partner, the more he was separating himself from the pack, so to speak, in establishing his credentials to kill. The other interesting thing I found in talking to the killers is that um, they, quite a number of them said, you know, the more I said it, the more real it became that I could actually do it.
So that threats really seemed to serve two purposes. One was to obviously intimidate and scare a victim into submission and to remaining in a relationship, but also for the killer, for the perpetrator, to psych himself up. You know, the words are very much rehearsals for actions. Really, they should have some sort of program that helps them to recognize that there is life beyond the relationship, but just to sort of get them to, to a place where they can begin to recognize that life doesn't stop, you know, that there is still life, you know, viable life for you, even if this relationship ends. You know, some of the approaches I like are, are ones that kind of um, educate neighborhoods about domestic violence. You know, one of the interesting things in my study was that um, I found that neighbors were kind of like the wild cards, you know, that they were kind of uniquely positioned, and actually four of the women were saved by their neighbors. Uh, and, and, and so one of the approaches I like is, is called bystander responsibility. Where they, and they've, they've used this at different college campuses, um, too, where they basically teach students to be responsible bystanders, you know. And, and it turns out that, that one of the reasons that people don't intervene when they hear signs of domestic violence or sexual assault is that they assume someone else is taking care of it, you know. Um, and, and so it, it's really important. And, and I, ironically, I think because we have so many more professionals that are addressing domestic violence, in some ways it can create this community passivity where people are stepping back and letting the professionals handle it, so to speak. Um, and, um, and yet, I, I think we certainly need to bring it back to really thinking about it as a community-wide responsibility, in, in where the co coordinated community responses have more players in them, not just the criminal justice system, so that's what I was saying. This is probably one of the most interesting and fascinating murder scenarios that I I personally find in the world of true crime is how can you kill your whole your like your own family members and especially those that you just wouldn't expect it from at least from the outside looking in I think families look a lot different on the inside I mean Facebook is a perfect example of you know what you want people to think of your family rather than how maybe it really is anywho I'm going to be here again next week, and I hope you're going to join me again. Oh, and thank you so much to Elizabeth for the suggestion uh, and to her sister for suggesting the podcast to Elizabeth so that she could suggest the case to me. Um, I really appreciate that word of mouth is my favorite thing in the whole wide world. So if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends, your family, your dog, anyone about it. Um, and again, thank you so much for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.